and yet it's cast in a new light so that there is something actually new. And he goes through most of this book defining what a true relationship with God ought to be with the Father and the Son. And he uses the relationship between us as brothers and sisters in Christ as the key point in determining what our relationship with the Father and Son is. Uh, He says we are to fellowship with one another, but truly our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So, people tend, and I've seen it many times, and I've probably done it in my own life, we tend to look upon our relationship with God, and that that's the thing that counts the most. And indeed it does. But what John has to say here shows that our relationship with one another reflects what our true relationship is with the Father and the Son. Now, we may have a deceived, veiled view of our relationship with God, because as we read in Proverbs the other night, a man is clean in his own eyes. (coughs) We think that our relationship with God uh, is special and, and is what it ought to be, Uh, Otherwise, we'd change it, wouldn't we? But we think it's okay. But what John is telling us here overall is that if our relationship with one another is not right, then our relationship with the Father and Son is also not right. I didn't go there last week, but let's go to uh, Matthew 25 just for a moment and see that that is indeed something that Christ uh, emphasized. Here and toward the end of chapter 25, uh, verse 34, Then shall a king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we you hungry and fed you, or thirsty and gave you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in, or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? That wasn't in their memory bank. He hadn't been any of those things to them. Uh, Therefore they said, How can this be? What do you mean? And the king shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it to me. So he says, I may not have suffered those things, and he doesn't today by any means, does he? He's at the throne of his father, and he has everything he could possibly need, except maybe he wants brothers and sisters. But have we done it to him? Then shall he say to them on the left hand, Depart from you, me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink, a stranger, and naked, and so on, and you prison, he didn't visit me. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you in these conditions? Then shall he answer them, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. 
So Christ is actually, in a word, saying that those who do not take care of others in need, their brothers and sisters in Christ, anyone under these circumstances and these conditions, will not be in the kingdom of God. Now, you can have all of your fantasies you want about what your relationship with God is, but if your relationship with mankind is not what it should be, then he's saying, it's not with me either. Because if you don't have these attitudes that you claim to have toward me, toward human beings, you won't be in my kingdom. Well, what's his kingdom all about? Us being the bride of Christ and taking care of the rest of his children in the millennium and great white throne judgment, a people who've just gone through a holocaust, in the millennium at least, and have need of everything. And if we haven't shown him that we're willing to take care of and serve in this life, why would he want us there if we don't have an attitude of service and giving and helping? Because that's what the beginning of the millennium is all about. And the beginning of the great white throne judgment as well. Is it not? There you will have people who have died in wars and died of horrible diseases and every malady known to man and died even as children. Children resurrected. They'll be helpless, won't they? No father, no mother there. It'll be a time of service and giving. So... What John is trying to get across to us here is you need to have this type of attitude if you're going to have the right kind of relationship with the Father and the Son. So yes, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, but he says down in verse 7 of 1 John 1, your fellowship is one with another, and that reflects your true relationship with God. And he he really makes a big thing of this. He says, you can say you know him, but if you don't keep the commandments, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. I made a point of that last week by saying, if we say the commandments are done away with, we're liars and we still walk in darkness, as he says a little later on. And therefore, if we're not worshiping the Father and the Son in the right spirit and attitude, through keeping his laws, his statutes, his judgments, then we are worshiping we know not what. And it really boils down to, if you believe the commandments were done away, or secondly, you believe they're in effect but don't keep them, in either case, you're actually worshiping Satan and don't know it. The Jews were in that position in Christ's day. they thought they worshipped the Father, and they went back to Abraham and to Moses. But he says, you worship your father the devil. (laughs) You worship you know not what. So you either follow God's laws, keep his commandments, or you are committing idolatry. Because God is love, and his commandments are love, as as John here makes a very, very strong statement. So we ought to be walking as he did, and he did not break the law once in his life. So the old commandment is the word which you've heard from the beginning in verse 7. And then he explains what the new commandment he writes is. 
Which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even till now. So he says, you cannot, be, you cannot claim to be walking in the light and have hatred and anger and bitterness at your brothers. You can't do it, because that is Satan's attitude. And if, you're, if you have those attitudes, then you're walking Satan's way, not God's way. It's that simple. Well, you can deceive yourself about your relationship with God, but if your relationship with mankind is not right, your relationship with God is not right, and you're still walking in darkness. Now, how is this a new commandment? Because it is now, or it now has, an emphasis on the spirit of the law, not just the physical side of the law. The law always existed. But Christ raised it in level to a higher understanding and a higher observance. Now you can't just not kill your brother, you also can't hate your brother. You can't not commit adultery, now you can't think it, and so on and so forth. He raised it to the spirit and attitude and mind control. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, which is a very, very tall order. So you can't hate, you can't be bitter, and you can't be angry. <clears throat> that's not the way God lives. That's not the way He thinks. Uh, he's there with great mercy, patience, compassion. He's very slow to anger. And even when He does get angry, angry at disobedience, it doesn't last long. Uh, we bear grudges for decades. Uh, can't do that. Can't keep score. Forgiveness is forgiveness. Now, you ask for God's forgiveness of your sins and transgressions, don't you? You don't want Him to bring it up five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty years later, do you? No, you don't. I don't either. I hope we grasp the concept that when Christ returns, you and I are not in a position that He's going to bring up our sins to us again. We don't go before the King as the sheep and the goats to go on the right or the left hand. Those who are in the millennium who will then have an opportunity to be before the king and be judged over a period of their lifetime will be sorted at that time. That's what that scripture applies to. But we are being sorted now. Judgment is now on the spiritual house of Israel. When Christ returns, you'll either rise or you won't. You won't have your sins enumerated to you. You'll either be spirit or you'll be standing on the ground or still in the grave. That judgment will have already been made. He's not going to get you up there in the air and then say, Well, uh, we're going to have the judgment now. Well, how did you get off the ground? <laughs> You're a goat. You're not a sheep. No, it's not going to be like that with us. That's not what that's even talking about. Our judgment is now. And we will either rise or we will not. That's why life for us is, in that sense, so scary. Well, I got down to verse 10 last week, and we'll pick it up there 
now that we've had a sermonette again over the first part. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So he's, he's saying here that it's not just a love of God as the Jews thought they had, but did they love the people around them? No, they lied to them, stole from them, devoured widows' houses, uh, lined their own pockets. Uh, they didn't care about the people around them. So they weren't walking in the light that John is talking about. Yeah, they were very persnickety over the commandments and still are to this day. But they haven't improved spiritually over what they were then. And that's why Christ divorced them and said, I'll have nothing more to do with you until you accept those whom I've sent. Which was Christ himself the Father sent, and then the apostles and the ministry thereafter that he sent. So the Jews are currently divorced from God spiritually, just like the rest of so-called Christianity or churchianity is. Verse 11, He that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. You can't have hate or bitterness in your heart and walk in the light. Can't be done. I don't know how you'd put it any clearer than that. If you keep score, you keep a, a list of people's sins, of people you know or have known, and you don't let them get past them, you're walking in darkness because Christ's sacrifice is there for us daily, isn't it? He's willing to forgive us every day and not bring it up to us. He says your sins will no longer be mentioned to you. Once they come under the blood of Christ, they're forgiven. He says there in Lamentations, I give you a new day every morning when the sun comes up. You're, you don't have to worry and fret and fuss with your conscience over the past. You get a new start every day. What are you going to do with it? Continue in the same mode of thinking that you did yesterday when you got in trouble? Or will that change? And we have to give each other that as well. See, retaining someone's... You may say, well, I don't hate them. I just retain their sins in my mind. Well, what's the difference? Verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. He's willing to forgive our sins. Now, a little later on, he talks here about denying Christ. Now, there are a lot of people, I'll, I'll get to that, but I, right here would be a good time to at least interject the thought. There are a lot of people who say they love Christ. They say they've accepted Christ. And they'd say, no, I don't deny Christ. And there are people in God's church today who do not deny Christ in their mind or with their lips. But they do deny Him. Now, how is that? It's not just words you say. If you do not forgive your brother, you have denied Christ's sacrifice. If you deny His sacrifice for sin, and you retain people's sins, then you've denied His sacrifice in Him, in actual living, in doing. So it's not a matter of <clears throat> saying the name of Christ There's more to denying Him than that. We deny His works, 
we deny his blood and forgiveness, then that's a denial of him as a being, not just his name. Christianity is a way of life, a way of thinking, to think like he thought and walk like he walked. So he says, because your sins are forgiven, you for his name's sake. So he, we sin, but when he forgives us, that denial of his name is not there because we accept that forgiveness and that mercy and that patience. And we need to, daily. Uh, Verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. So he mentions different categories of people here that he is writing to and in a positive light. Now these people weren't perfect by any means. But they had turned to God, they had committed themselves to God, and whether they were fathers, figuratively, or I mean physically, or young men, or even little children, if they had an attitude toward God, uh, then he was commending them for that and for their obedience. Now he might be speaking even more in a spiritual sense here, in those who... Uh, have been long-time members, those who have been new in the church, and even those who are at the very beginning of their Christian walk. And I think that probably that is more what he has in mind, because how are you going to say to little children, you've known the Father? Little children haven't known much about God. Now, they may be being taught about God, but they haven't really known Him. So I would say that he's really speaking more in an overall sense of our spiritual situation and where we are uh, toward the end of our life or at the beginning of our spiritual life. And that would apply to everyone just baptized or whether they've been members for 50 years. Because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. Now, some of the older members of the church, even when he was writing this, probably in his 90s, there probably were some still around who were there at Pentecost or shortly thereafter in 31 when uh, the church began to grow. So he says, you've known him from the beginning of this whole thing. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. So, people who have been in the church a while, but not a long, long time, have been strong, strong members, good members, and you have overcome the wicked one. That's what this is all about, is overcoming. I don't care whether you think you're Philadelphian or not. Uh, People say, well, he didn't have anything bad to say about Philadelphia. Well, what did he say to Philadelphia? He says, overcome. Same thing he told everybody else. So obviously Philadelphia wasn't perfect either if they had to overcome. Uh, that, that gets overlooked a lot of times by the church, and people who try to make them things, themselves think they're more important than they are. Well, then in 15, <clears throat> he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, 
If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, he's not talking about his own creation here, the world or the planet. Uh, He's talking about culture and society. Uh, Those are the things that people do that are contrary to God. Uh, The worldly system, even its governments for the most part, uh, its habits, its mores, its morals. He's talking about the way the world does things. And the way the world does things started back with Adam and Eve, where they denied God's word and committed idolatry immediately, listening to Satan instead of to God. And the world, for the most part around us, do not listen to God. Even those who are supposedly Christian do not listen to God. Uh, Here, they talk about love a lot. Well, who was the apostle who had more love than any of them? That was John. Uh, And he writes mostly about love in one form or another in both these three books and in his own epistle. And yet, he speaks of love as completely synonymous with obedience. And the world's religions say the commandments are done away, we just have to have love in our hearts. Well, that can be human emotion, but it isn't necessarily God's love, because God's love is based on obedience to the commandments. That's what godly love is. Most of them really do kind of believe in the commandments, even though they say they're done away with. They really don't think you ought to murder, most of them. They don't think you ought to commit adultery. They don't think you should lie. They don't think you should bear false witness and so on or covet. And they do think you should put God ahead of everything, don't they? It's basically one that they just hate. That's the Sabbath, the sign between God and His people. And that's why it is a sign, is because people hate the Sabbath so much that they'll do away with all ten just so they don't have to keep the one. Now, in literal effect, they don't keep any of them because if you do break one, you do break them all in spirit. Uh, Paul made that very clear there in Colossians. He says, covetousness covetousness is idolatry. So if we covet something we're not supposed to have, we're putting that something ahead of God's instruction, and that is idolatry. So all the commandments are tied completely together in our relationship with God, and therefore our relationship with man. And that's what John is trying to emphasize here. So we're not to enjoy in a wrong way or love the world or the things that are in its culture. What can you say, even about American culture? We love our country. We love America. What is out there in that culture that's worthwhile, that's godly? What comes over the TV, over the radio, over the Internet? What comes over those sources that is godly? What about our marketing system? Do we have just weights and measures? Do we have fair prices for the junk that we buy and sell? Uh, you know, what, what out there is redeemable? It's going to be a complete change in the millennium from the way that mankind is doing things under Satan's rule. So that's what he's saying. You, you, you can't love the society and the culture around you. You have to create a godly culture. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. 
is learning to live like we will live throughout all eternity. Patience, mercy, kindness, obedience, the real love of God. We're supposed to be practicing that. And it is not easy because we have deceitful, desperately wicked minds who love sin and the pleasures, temporary pleasures of sin more than we love God by nature. Now he makes a pretty bold statement here, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. There's nothing redeemable here. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He rules the earth right now with God's permission. And virtually everything in it is twisted, upside down, skewed, and backward. Even so-called Christianity is twisted and out of context and doesn't fit the Bible. doesn't fit even First John here. Everything out there, and the, that's what the world is all about, is fleshly desires and lust and pride. And those are things that we're supposed to be getting away from. Read, first, read Matthew 5. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. This culture, this age, this way of doing things is going away. When Christ returns, Satan will be bound, and things are going to change rapidly. But he that does the will of God abides forever. What's the will of God? That we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That will give us eternal life. He doesn't want any rebels in his kingdom. He's already had that with Satan and the demons. That's not a good way to be. And it's, he has a plan to get rid of that, but it isn't all finished yet. Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that an Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. Well, they were at the end of that age of the church, and many who had come into the church had adopted false doctrine and had pulled away from the apostles and from John, who was the last man standing. And they were against Christ in terms not of perhaps saying, I'm against Christ. I don't think most of them would have said that. They still thought they were Christians, but their beliefs and their doctrines and their conduct were contrary to God's way. Even as we have those in the church today who have done the same things. Weren't the Tkachas Antichrist? Yes. Herbert Armstrong had been teaching us to follow God's ways. And the Tkachas came in and turned us away from God's ways. And that is anti or against Christ and against the Father. Do they still claim to be Christian? Yeah. Are they? No. And we all are anti-Christ to one degree or another, are we not? I have thoughts sometimes that are certainly ungodly, and that's against Christ. Now, hopefully, I'm making those further and fewer between, but <laughs> we're all human. And we're not living a life of sin. We're trying to live correctly according to His ways. 
And even as there were people then who were turning against Christ's teachings, we have the same thing today with all kinds of heresies and false doctrine coming into the church. And we know that it is the last time now. Now, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, you and I have experienced friends, relatives, members of the church over the last 30 years who have left. And they are showing that they weren't really of us because they began to do different things and follow different uh, ways. They still think they're of us, I suppose, but they're not. I had somebody tell me, well, you're not a Christian anymore, but I'm in God's church. I'm not in your church. Well, this ain't my church. (laughs) I think we have converted people here who are truly seeking to serve God, and we are called a congregation of God. I took that name in particular because I didn't want to feel that we were in any way exclusive or better than anyone else. We're just part of the church of God that he has spewed out of his mouth. And we're all seeking to repent and turn to him with all our hearts instead of being lackadaisical like we were. And recreating worldwide doesn't accomplish anything because God spewed it out. We've got to go beyond what we were. I've got to go beyond what I was in worldwide. I've got to get closer to God and better, a better obedient Christian than I was in worldwide. More on fire than being, instead of being lackadaisical. So uh, we have those who have departed or gone from us, and they don't have the attitudes they ought to have. And we have to work at having the ones we ought to have. So, he says, you have an unction, verse 20, from the Holy One, and you know all things. Uh, An unction means anointing, really, uh, number 5545 in the Greek. Uh, You have an anointing from the Holy One. That is, we we repented, we're baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, and we're set aside, or sanctified, which is what it means. Uh, We have a calling, a setting aside, a sanctification from God. And therefore, we know all things. Does that mean we know everything? No, we we understand the truth. But even said that there is an Elijah to come at the end time who would restore all things. So there were a lot of things that those who perhaps were Christian in Rhode Island or in early America didn't know. There were things the Seventh-day Church of God didn't know and things Herbert Armstrong did not know. And he learned as he went through life, but he still didn't know everything. And not only that, he can't be the Elijah to come because he died 30 years ago, and it says when uh, that happens, the end will be here. And he didn't restore everything, and he died, and the end is not yet here. So people cling to that, saying he was the Elijah, but aren't we supposed to grow in grace and knowledge? When does that cut off? When he died... Had everything been learned? I've learned a lot since he died. Have you? I think we have. And if we're growing in grace and in knowledge, we should still be learning. 
Every time I pick up this book, it seems, I see something or grasp something that I didn't get before. These words can have so many different meanings. You can read the same verse for 15 different reasons because they're so interrelated and so concisely and purely written. So we're, it's always new to us, or should be. Uh, so we do know the truth, and there is no lie in the truth. Verse 22, Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is an antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Well, the Jews, for the most part, fit that category in, in terms of uh, literal not believing in. They say they look to the Father, but they will not accept Christ. Now, a few evangelical Jews have, but they're nothing but hybrid uh, churchianity people, uh, worldly Christian. But So that's a category of people who simply deny who Christ is. But as I said earlier, if we deny forgiveness of our brother, and that's what John is talking about through this whole context then we've denied the sacrifice of Christ because he will not deny forgiveness. When we confess and repent of our sins, he will forgive us. He said so. And it is a daily process, a continuing sacrifice. So we're in denial of his blood for our brother. We want it for ourselves, but if we deny it to our brother, uh, that's a problem. And even denying his forgiveness for our own sins is a denial of Christ. What makes your sin so special that you can't forgive yourself? Now, if Christ forgives you, you need to be able to forgive yourself too. If you, if you confess to Him your sins and you're working at overcoming them, you're not supposed to be carrying the past around like a bunch of baggage or like a trailer hitched behind you. You're supposed to be washed and clean and pure day by day as you go to God and ask for forgiveness in the blood of Christ to be applied for your sins. Now, do people often worry about things they did 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Yes, they do. But that's lack of faith. That's lack of trust in the sacrifice of Christ. And that really is a denial of His blood. So you not only have to forgive others, you have to forgive yourself. Now, are we not told that we are to love our brother as ourselves? You don't have to love somebody else more than you love yourself, but you have to love yourself as much. Some, so some people say, well, I can forgive my brother, but boy, I just can't forgive myself. I keep going back. Things I did 20, 30, 40 years ago. No. No. Living in the past won't get you anywhere. All that does is bog you down, depress you, frustrate you, and keep you from moving forward in life. What did Paul say? Forgetting the past, moving on toward the resurrection. That's not exactly the way he said it, but that was the thought he had. Divorce yourself from the past. Divorce is kind of a final word, isn't it? <laughs> The blood of Christ divorces us from our past. So don't only forgive your brother, forgive yourself. 
quit living in the past. Did we get that? Did we understand that? Did we comprehend it? All right, now how about live it? Quit worrying about the past. Worry about today and tomorrow. (laughs) You can't do a thing about the past. Christ has already done something about it. Now accept that, believe it, and be thankful for it, and move on. That's what we have to do. Today matters only today, and tomorrow matters tomorrow. Now, don't repeat what you did 20, 30, 40 years ago. That may be our fear, too. But if it's in the past, it's in the past. And not only is it there, or was it there, it's now gone. Why do we keep the Passover? As an annual reminder that that continual sacrifice is there. The the love of God is so incredible that no matter how wretched, how rotten, how mistake-filled our lives has been, He's willing to forgive. Didn't He come to save sinners? Not the righteous, but sinners. That's what He said. So He came to save you if you've been a sinner. So, be thankful for it. Don't sit and commiserate with yourself and be frustrated over your past. won't do you a bit of good. Be thankful for your opportunity of a future. That's where we should be. So don't deny Christ in your own life or in the life of others. And that's what, again, the whole emphasis of John here is in our relationship with each other so that our relationship with God might be true uh, and as evidenced by the way we treat others. Verse 24, Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. Uh, The things that we learn, the very basics of Christianity, we need to abide in those. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. So you don't give up the faith. You don't give up the hope. You remember the things that you learned as a child, a a newly begotten one toward God's kingdom, all those basic uh, repentance cornerstones. Don't forget, how did you get where you are? And this is the promise that He has promised us, even eternal life. Now, that's one of the very important basic things we learned when we started learning the truth of God, is that we are here to become God, the mystery of the ages. We're here to become part of His family and like Him. That's blasphemy to the world, but when you understand the Scriptures, it is a hope that we have. It is a goal and a purpose in our lives. These things have I written to you concerning them that seduce you. They'll try to pull you away from these basic building blocks. But the anointing which you have received of Him him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you Uh, But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in Him. Now, did he just say here as a sidelight that we don't need teachers? No, he did not. He's saying these basic building blocks of Christianity that you were taught by men, don't forget them. 
You don't need to be taught these things by men. You've already learned them from men. They're from God. Don't forget them. Now, I can give you a list of scriptures here, uh, nearly as from my hand to my elbow, of scriptures showing that you do need teachers. Uh, Maybe I should stop and make a sermon out of that. I've gone over them before. What was John doing here? He was teaching them. What was Paul doing? He was teaching and preaching. Uh, On and on and on it goes. There are many, many scriptures that show that we need men to teach us, to help us grow. Isn't that what he said the ministry was for? To help the, the saints become perfect, to teach them, to guide them, to lead them. So people take something out of context and then say, well, we're all teachers, we're all apostles, we're all sent by God. And on and on and on the goofiness goes. Keep it in context and you won't go wrong. Verse 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Now, Paul had times in his life when he was not really confident, when he would reflect on how wretched a man he truly was and who would save him from this body of sin and death, which would be Christ, of course. But as he went through life, he became more confident based on his obedience to God's ways and his following of Christ that he would be in the kingdom of God, and so stated just before he died. So that confidence needs to be able to grow in us. What destroys that confidence and that faith that you'll be there? Disobedience. It's when we do sin that we say, oh man, how am I ever going to make it? It is a certain fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, that it does strike our conscience when we sin, because we want to be in the kingdom of God, and you and I understand we have to obey His ways and treat each other correctly if we are going to be there. So when we do mistreat each other, uh, it should prick our conscience. We are to abide in Him and not be ashamed when He comes. Well, that reiterates what I said earlier. We don't stand before Him as sheep and goats. That's already been decided. We will stand in glory when we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But if we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing, and we're still standing there on the ground, then we're going to be very ashamed. If you're rising, you're not going to feel shame. You're going to feel a wonderful feeling of, of honor and glory and respect and thanksgiving and, and hallelujah and happiness. <laughs> the highest human emotions you're going to feel as you are changed into spirit, not shame. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is, it says, born of Him should be begotten. Uh, The word used for born throughout this book is genau in the the Greek, number 1080. And the word itself means to beget or conceive every place it's used. So we are not born into His kingdom by any means. We are merely begotten. Uh, 
John does not contradict himself. Let's go for a moment and make this point again uh, in John 3. I understand that someone whom some of us have listened to in the past gave a sermon a few years ago saying that we already have the Spirit of God before we are even uh, baptized and that in some way worked it around to indicate that we are already born uh, of God if we're born in the Spirit. Now, I did not hear that sermon, so I cannot elucidate upon it uh, beyond a certain point. But I want us to understand that Herbert Armstrong was essentially correct in what he believed on being born again. Uh, Chapter 3 of John, here's what John himself had to say. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles uh, that you do except God be with him. Then Emmanuel answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we do need to be born again, and we will be born again at the time of the first resurrection. Otherwise, we won't see the kingdom of God. Uh, We'll go into the lake of fire. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? What in the world are you talking about? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Emmanuel answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then the defining statement, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Are you still flesh? I, yeah, I am. You can't pass the hat pen test, can you? You're still flesh. You're not born of the Spirit. If you were born of the Spirit, you would be Spirit. I don't know how you could twist that out of context and believe anything different, because it's said in very, very plain language. Then he explains a bit. Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. The the wind blows where it wants, and you hear the sound, but you cannot tell whence it comes and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, you and I make noise when we move around and go where we want, don't we? And uh, we can be seen. But he says, once you're born of the Spirit... You can't be seen. You, you can't be heard unless you speak or want to be heard. You're spirit. You're not flesh. You can't be seen. That ought to be fairly clear, shouldn't it? That the man who's talking about being born of him back here in First John is the same one that wrote John 3. Understand that God made man and woman very, very meticulously. He created man and woman as a type of the marriage of Christ. It is a spiritual type all the way through. And doesn't Paul say that in Ephesians 5? That a a marriage of a man and a woman is to be a type of our marriage to Christ. 
He made it very, very plain. Well, all the way through, this has to be true. Now, does God's Spirit work with us before we're baptized? Of course it does. It has to. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So God has to begin at some point to open our mind, does he not, to understand truth before we can repent and be baptized. It isn't that his Spirit is dwelling within us at that point. What did Christ say? The Spirit is with you, but it shall be in you. So God begins to work with us so that we might come to the point that we repent, baptize, are baptized, and then uh, conceived at the laying on of hands, so that we might then begin to grow in order to be born into spirit at the first resurrection. Now, I think probably the basis of that sermon was that God's Spirit is already there before you're ever even baptized. Let's look at the analogy that Herbert Armstrong always used, and which the Bible used, as I just said, Paul used it, which is very clear, and understand how this comes about. I don't think Herbert Armstrong ever went into it uh, prior to repenting and being baptized. He always just said, we're conceived at the laying on of hands. That's when God's Spirit begins to actually dwell in you and the conception occurs. Well, what about this period of time leading up to that conception? How would you define that? How would you explain it? And I think the analogy of man and woman make this very, very clear. We're all adults here, I think. So let's describe it the way God made it. Now, some of us can look back, and we can see that God began working in our lives perhaps very early in life. Certain things happened, you came across truth, you knew somebody, you grew up in the church, whatever. Uh, but God began working with you. And he even said of some of the prophets, I, I knew you from mother, your mother's womb. Well, does that mean they were born of the Spirit in their mother's womb? No, they were still not even yet a physical human being, much less a spirit in the kingdom of God, as John 3 clearly explains. So let's take this analogy a little further than perhaps we've thought in the past and understand how the Spirit is working with us before we are ever actually baptized. When a boy and a girl or a young man and a young woman meet, sometimes nothing happens. Hi, how are you? Sometimes something happens. Hi, I like you. Or you're cute. Or you seem to have a nice personality. Or I'd like to get to know you better. Sometimes something happens there. Now, is that equivalent of us coming across a plain truth or a broadcast or a parent teaching us and we register a certain interest? Well, is that the beginning of God's Spirit working with us? Just as a young man and a young woman begin to show some interest in one another and their minds begin to be opened to the personality and the type of person they are 
and maybe it's an immediate physical reaction, but then the mental and emotional reactions might come a little later as we get to know one another. Now, isn't that the way it happens with Christianity? You begin to learn a little about God's truth. He opens your mind. You begin to understand it a little better. You begin to understand the Father and Son a little better. Some of the commandments you are told, oh, you've got to keep the Sabbath. Oh, what a shock. But it's kind of a flirtation process, kind of a get-to-know-you process, kind of a how are we going to live, how are we going to get along, what are we going to do in this walk together. Don't a young man and one woman do the same thing? Even old men and old women who are getting remarried if they're widowers or whatever go through the same process. Do they not? Got to get to know you. What was the song? Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. Coming to think I kind of like you as it went and so on. So there's a courtship there. No children. In fact, if they do things the way God says, there will not be a sexual relationship until they are married. No chance of conception of a child until they're married. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's not the culture in the world that we're supposed to hate. Uh, it's different than that. But that's what God wants. Now, have you heard the expression, back before you were even a gleam in your father's eye? We've all heard that. As they get to know each other, they haven't thought about children yet. It's the potential father and the potential mother who are involved. No children yet. Now, our father is God in heaven, and our elder brother is there. And the church is typified as the mother, is it not? There in Galatians, that's what Paul says. So, what is building is a potential marriage, humanly speaking again, of a potential father and mother. They get to know each other, and then they decide to get married. And when they do get married, then they can have a sexual relationship, which is necessary in order for a conception to occur. Well, the spirit and attitude were growing long before the marriage occurred during the courtship. Does God not begin to work with our mind and our spirit, the spirit in man, before we're baptized? Sure, it's a courtship. It's a learning. Been no conception yet. Now, if we are born or even conceived ahead of baptism... Isn't that tantamount to adultery or fornication? Yeah. The relationship of man and woman goes all the way through this analogy. You're not supposed to have sex before you're married. That's fornication. If you do, you've broken God's law. And you could have children ahead of time because you've been exposed to the possibility. That's not supposed to be. Everything needs to stay in order. That's why fornication prior to marriage is so important a thing. To the world, it means nothing anymore. But in the analogy of God's true way of life, it means a lot. 
So what happens? A couple gets married, and they're married, and they may have talked about having children someday before they were married, and they may start talking about it and even planning it after they're married, but they haven't really done anything about it yet. Well, there comes a point when somebody's the aggressor, one or the other of the couple, and maybe early in the day there's a little lift of an eyebrow or a little pat on the behind or there's a little something, little music they both relate to and have been part of their uh, engagement period or whatever. And those begin to stimulate thoughts and feelings. And then, uh, somewhere during the day or that night, uh, it gets a little more involved. Foreplay. A little more kissing or caressing or so on. And then it leads to the main event. Okay? That's the way it works spiritually as we begin to come to God. We're not begotten ahead of time. We're not born ahead of time. We go through the process. The getting to know you. The getting to know the rules. The getting to know what life as a Christian is going to be about. That's the courtship. Then you get more intense. As the marriage comes, the engagement is almost done, it's time to get married. Well, you get married, and then you're, then you're legally able to do those things which would conceive a child. And you do. Then that child, from that moment, grows for approximately nine months until it can be born as a full-fledged human being. We begin with God enacting with the Spirit in man to begin to learn truth. Then as we learn it, we begin to follow it. And we follow in the right order of things. So, what did Christ say? Repent and be baptized. So, we begin to repent. We begin to show that we're willing to walk in the Spirit not in the flesh. We're beginning to keep His laws and His ways. Now that's proof to Him, as a potential ultimate husband, that we're willing to follow the rules and do what we're supposed to do. Sure, the Spirit of God is with you, just as a a young man and a young woman have a spirit, uh, an interest, a desire, a coming to amalgamate their paths, their pasts, their their lives, their history together and try to find common ground on which a relationship can work. That's what God's doing with us in the uh, pre-baptism time, preconception. And when we, when He sees that we're compatible and we're working toward compatibility, at least, we're not totally compatible yet, then we begin to repent and get in line with the rules of His house the kingdom of God. So then he says, oh, okay, I'm leading you to repentance. Now, when you have gone that far, you can be baptized, which means that you're leaving your old life behind. You go down into that water, and it's a, saying, it's tip, it's a type of death. Now, a young man and woman do the same thing with each other, don't they? There's no telling what they've done in the past, either one of them. 
But when they stand there and get married, they're saying, the way I lived in the past, I'm not going to live that way anymore. My life is with you, and I'm going to do everything I can to please you and serve you and be faithful to you and help you and do everything to make this marriage work the way God's kingdom should work. So they're committing themselves one to another to do that. People today don't want to commit anymore. They don't want to change. They don't want to adapt. They want to keep being me and you do what I say. <laughs> you got to change, not me. That goes both directions. So then when we're baptized, that means the old man, the old way of living and thinking, goes away. Hopefully. Then... By the laying on of hands, we receive the Holy Spirit not to be with us anymore, but to be in us. That is the conception when the laying on of hands is done. And not just anybody can do that. God has authorized that only those who have been duly trained and accepted and ordained are to baptize and to lay hands on because everything has to be done decently and in order and according to the rules. Now, can you marry Christ without Christ involved? No. You can't get into the kingdom of God any other way except through He who is the door. That's the only way you can get in. And we cannot presume to do things that we have not been authorized to do. That's the same as witchcraft. So not everybody can anoint, even though some people today in the church think they can. It says, no, go to the elders of the church and let them anoint them with oil and the prayer of faith. Not just anybody can do that. Only those who have been designated elders. Now, only God, then, can conceive us in His Spirit. It's something He has to do. Just as a father in the physical marriage is the only one supposed to be able to conceive a child in that woman's womb. If anybody else does it, it's contrary to the law. It's, it's illegitimate. It's wrong. It's adulterous. It's not according to the way God set it up. We have to do things the way God set it up. So that's why he has limited some of these ceremonies to those who are ordained for that purpose is so that everything will be done decently and in order and according to law and by the right people. Just like the father is the only one who can legally conceive a child with his wife. That's why adultery and fornication, again, is such an important concept for us to grasp, spiritual adultery and fornication. And that's why he's made us this way. Now, is that now once we're conceived, we're not born, that child is just a little blob, a few molecules at first, but then it begins to multiply and it grows in mother's womb. That's our Christian walk. That's our life. We grow in the knowledge of God. We get more mature. And then we begin to form our digits and, and our minds and, and our bodies. But we're, if we're born premature, we probably won't live. So we have to become mature Christians. That's the whole 
purpose of the way God set up babies to be born. We lived with Mama, the church, for that nine months. And we grow. The mother is there to feed us, to nurture us, to help us grow so that we can be born and live in the kingdom of God. Now, the, the mother isn't there to get between that child and the father. She has the father put his hand on her tummy and feel the baby kicking and be part of it. Just as the church is not there to be in an organizational chart between you and God. No, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. You have absolute direct access to the father if you go through the son. Not through the church, the mother. It isn't the Father, the Son, the Apostle, and so on, and you down here in a direct line of authority. You can go to the Father any time. And it should be that in a family. The mother is to encourage the relationship with the Father. She's there with the kids day and night. He goes off to work. He comes home, and she points the children to the Father. That's part of her duty, one of her most important duties. Just as the church is not to get between, but to point the children to the Father. The church is off to the side if you want to make an organizational chart. You don't have to go through the mother to talk to your father, do you? Shouldn't. No, she's here, but you can go jump in daddy's arms and talk to him anytime you want to. She doesn't get in the way of that. The church should be the same way. She's there to help you in your relationship with the Father. Just as she grows that child for nine months, and then she goes through the pain of childbirth, even as the church is depicted in several different prophecies as being in pain of childbirth. The church bringing forth children to God is pictured as childbirth. That's part of the duty of the church, is to go through the pain of helping the children come to the place that they can be born into the kingdom of God. So let's understand the analogy all the way through from the very beginning. From, from legitimacy and law-keeping and foreplay all the way through to being born into the kingdom of God. The analogy of a child, a father, a mother, and a child... Uh, you, you can't stop, or you can't start with conception, <laughs> you know, when, when the father and mother are together in a sexual relationship. No, that goes way back before that. The analogy starts way before that. So to, for somebody to try to say, well, we're kind of born, even, and we already have the Spirit in us before we're baptized, I think that's a misnomer, and I think it probably uh, needs to have the rest of the analogy applied to it so that we understand that, yeah, you can have God's Spirit with you. It has to be there for your mind even to begin to open. But that doesn't mean you're conceived and the Spirit isn't in you yet to grow toward the kingdom of God. So, uh, verse 29, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is begotten of Him. The child does righteousness. What does a child do in the mother's womb that is, that is correct? He's nurtured by her body. He grows fingers and toes. He grows a mind. Those are things 
that he's supposed to be doing while he's in there for nine months. Just as we, once we're conceived, are to be growing spiritually during this period of time. Now, it's more than nine months. Uh, it's, you know, years and years, even decades, until we're ready to be born into the kingdom of God. But it's the same analogy, this period of growth, so that when he appears, we'll be ready to be born into the kingdom of God. So I, I think it necessary that we, we fully understand that all the way through, and it helps us better understand the, the courtship and everything before baptism ever occurs, before the commitment is made and the marriage is... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm getting old. Consummated. And then children are legal. Well, I'm out of time, so let's stop at the end of chapter 2. But I, I thought it was worth maybe going through that a little bit and understanding maybe the process a little more completely and clearly than we have uh, so that we better understand how the Spirit of God begins to work with us and where that's headed ultimately.